Well, our lesson for this morning is entitled Hope for America. And I want to look at the foundation of that hope as we begin our lesson with one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. It's found in Isaiah chapters 36 through 38, in 2 Kings 18, 17 through chapter 19, 37, and then in 2 Chronicles 32 and verses 1 through 23. With that much coverage, it must be important. Question, what stimulates and prompts us to pray more than anything else? A crisis of major proportions. Now, if my crisis is a leaky water faucet, then that's inconvenient, but I call the plumber and he's going to come and fix that. If I have a flat tire on my car, then I get out and change the flat tire or call someone to do it, and it's no big deal, as we say. But what if the crisis involves the imminent destruction of the entire nation? Such was the plight of King Hezekiah of Judah in his 14th year. Second Chronicles 32 and verse 1. After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. The deeds of faithfulness were Hezekiah's efforts to clean up the temple, reform the priesthood, including the Levites, and restore the true worship of Jehovah in the land of Judah. Now you would have think that you would have thought that because of everything Hezekiah had done in his faithfulness, that God would reward him with peace and prosperity. But such is not the case. The Assyrian army is marching once again, and they are headed toward Jerusalem. Hezekiah was faithful to the Lord, but it looks like the Lord was not faithful to Hezekiah. After all, the king had done, and if you look in Second Chronicles 31.20, it says, that which was good and right and true before the Lord his God. All that he had done to bring a revival in the land, it would seem that God would have honored that. So why didn't the Lord protect him from another Assyrian invasion? Don't stumble on a biblical enigma. Sometimes it looks like the bad guys are getting the reward and the good guys are faced with more adversity. We can see why the Assyrians would have destroyed the wicked nation of Israel in all of their idolatry and wrong practices of religion. But we wonder why, after a man's effort at revival, would the enemy be marching toward Jerusalem? Now, remember what we learned in first light several weeks ago. In this life, things are not always as they seem to appear. In 2 Chronicles 32 and 1 through 8, we see the preparations for the coming of the Assyrians. Hezekiah knew that there was a threat looming in the north, and so he and his advisors got the people together, and they began to work to strengthen the walls of Jerusalem, to build more lookout towers, to manufacture weapons in abundance so that they would be prepared for the coming of the enemy. Hezekiah got the people together and he did the same thing that we are doing this morning. He hearkened back to a time of God's deliverance in history. And that time in the speech that he made, it sounds 
almost exactly like what God said to Israel through the words of Moses and to Joshua. And we see that in Deuteronomy 31 and in the first chapter of Joshua. Now I'm reading from 2 Chronicles 32, verses 7 and 8, and there it is on the screen. And this was the essence of Hezekiah's speech to the people in the face of the enemy. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. But the Assyrians who were camping out in Lachish, about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem, had a different thought in mind. They were going to come with siege warfare and just starve them out. And when they got weak enough and disheartened enough, then they would take the city. And they had done very well according to Assyrian records that we have found in archaeology. They had already taken 46 fortified cities in the land of Judah. So now they're coming upon the capital city, And if the capital city falls, then the whole thing goes down and the nation is lost. A distinct advantage in military warfare of that day would be an ample water supply, both for men and animals that were used in war. So Hezekiah knew this and he wanted to prevent the invaders enjoying plentiful water. So he and his engineers decided to block up the Gihon Spring which was the only available source of water outside the city at that time. So he got his guys together and they dug an aqueduct through solid rock 1,777 feet long so that they could bring the water from the Gihon Spring in under the wall to the pool of Siloam and they would have a supply of fresh water. In 1880, archaeologists discovered a Hebrew inscription And it was near the entrance of the reservoir, and it gave a very graphic account of how the uh, aqueduct was built with two workforces, one starting on the one end and one on the other, and then working toward each other in the middle. We know a lot historically other than from the scripture about what was going on in those days. So then, Sennacherib, king of Syria, had come against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Now we skip to Isaiah in chapter 36 and verse 2. Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan from Lachish to Jerusalem to Hezekiah with a large army, and they stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. Now if you put that together with the other references, he sent three officials, Tartan, Rebsaris, and Rabshakeh. These were not the names of those men. These were their positions in his military government. The Tartan was the supreme commander, Rabsaris, the chief officer, and Rabshakeh, the field commander. So the field commander is the spokesman, and he comes to the walls of Jerusalem with an ultimatum. And the men that Hezekiah send out tell him to speak in the Aramaic trade language of the day. But he speaks loudly in the Hebrew so that the people who were going to be feeling the brunt of the siege would hear him behind the wall. 
Here is a major test for Hezekiah. The three officials from Assyria were standing in the precise location where Hezekiah's father Ahaz had faced the Syrian army years before. Isaiah the prophet had come to Ahaz and said, Put your trust in the Lord. You don't have to fear what the Syrians are going to do to you at that time, Aram. But unfortunately, Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, did not put his trust in the Lord. He wanted to get some help from the Egyptians. And he had been told the Egyptians are not going to be any help for you. So now the test has come to Hezekiah. Is he going to trust in God where his dad failed to trust in God? Same place geographically. The message is delivered. The same prophet, Isaiah, is still presiding. And Hezekiah now has a difficult decision to make because he realizes he doesn't have any earthly hope. So we're in 2 Kings and chapter 18. When the Assyrians called to the king, he sent out his representatives. And then Hezekiah responds to that. Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the recorder. Now, the recorder would have been kind of like a chancellor. He was responsible for treaties, for archives, for anything of great importance to the king. The recorder would handle that. So these were the men that were sent out to meet with the Assyrian officials. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? The field commander is getting off to a bad start right from the beginning. The great king is God on his throne. But he thinks the great king is Sennacherib. I say your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? He's speaking for Sennacherib. Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him. But if you say, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall not worship before this altar? Now therefore come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. And I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders upon them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And now I have come up, have I come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go against this land and destroy it. Notice heathens often speak as if they know God and what he's thinking and what he's telling folks. Hezekiah's near-fatal illness occurred in 702 B.C., according to many scholars, and so did the visit from the Babylonian envoys. And so Hezekiah is thinking, and the Assyrians come that same year, So I imagine he's thinking 14 more years that I have to live after God had cured him of his disease and he doesn't want to spend that 14 years in captivity. So now Hezekiah really is wondering what are we going to do about this major crisis that has come to the land? Well, it all really boils down to one thing for Hezekiah and for us and it is faith in 
God? Are we really going to trust what God tells us in the Scripture? Or are we going to take a look at the odds of what is coming against us? 2 Kings 18, and skipping over to verse 32, if you're following in your Bible, the uh, field commander, Rabshakeh, now keeps digging a deeper hole for himself, and he comes out with one of the most blasphemous statements in all of Scripture. Verse 32, Do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? What would be God's response to that? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. How will Hezekiah respond to the crisis? He sees now that this is beyond the pale of military help or political intervention or anything else that human resources could provide. He is in some serious trouble. How is he going to respond? would he have had the writings of David in Psalm 2? I think he should have had those. And perhaps he did turn to them. Now, we want to look at some principles as we follow through in the book of Kings, and then we want to try to make some application from these principles to our own situation. First, I'm reading from 2 Kings 19 and 1 through 5, when Hezekiah heard the words of Rabshakeh, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. What do you think is going on there at the house of the Lord? Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna the scribe and the elders and the priests, the, the elders of the priest covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For the children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. Principle number one. Adjust your attitude and recognize that God is the only hope. Kings normally act like kings, don't they? Ever been around a king? Probably been around some people who thought they were king. But kings are thinking, hey, I give the command and it happens. But now that attitude is missing from Hezekiah as he humbles himself. And he puts on the sackcloth and the ashes and he realizes that God is the only hope. 2 Kings 19.2, it's mentioned here, Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the scribe, the elders and priests of the priest, Isaiah, the prophet. Principle number two is enlist the help of everyone who knows how to pray. 
I've been wondering when somebody was going to come to me and say, you know, Bob, we better start praying for this nation. Oh, we pray for the nation all the time. We prayed for the nation yesterday when we had a men's meeting. But I'm talking about some really serious prayer. Maybe we need to pray all night. I don't know. I do know desperate men will do desperate deeds. Enlist the help of everyone who knows how to pray. Second Kings 19, the account goes on. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, thou art the God, thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. And now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone art God. Number three. Exalt God and honor Him in your prayer according to Scripture. Scripture tells us how to pray and how to honor God. And, of course, I guess the great honor that we would give Him is to trust and obey. Next, Second Kings 19 and verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, I have heard you. Expect God to hear your prayer. Don't expect too much out of anyone else, but expect that the Lord is going to be good on what He says. Psalm 62.5, My soul wait in silence for God only, for my expectation is from Him. Then we move to 2 Kings 19.22. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? He's directing the question toward the king of Syria. And the answer is, against the Holy One of Israel. And this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Expect God to protect His reputation. No matter what it may look like, things are not always as they seem to appear. Sometimes God gives people plenty of time to set a trap for themselves. Then 2 Kings 19 and verse 23, Through your messengers you have reproached the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest part of Lebanon, and I cut down the tall cedars and the choice cypresses, and I entered the furthest lodging place in thick forest. I dug wells and drunk, drank foreign water. And with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Sounds kind of like Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? I did this, I did that. But then the Lord speaks. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Do you see what's happening here? 
God is saying that he is the one who planned for King Sennacherib to do what he has done thus far. Verse 26, therefore, its inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it's grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. This is God speaking. Because of your raging against me and because your arrogance has come up in my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. He's using some graphic imagery that the Assyrians would have been very familiar with. And I would say expect that God is in control. No one can mock God. It may look like for a time that's what's happening. Then 2 Kings 19, Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now, I don't know if they couldn't conquer Lachish or maybe they conquered it and went on, but Libna was a fortified town that was not too far from Lachish. And it's probably at Libna that the following event takes place. And this is Second Kings 19 and verse 35. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men rose up early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. I don't guess there were dead men rising up, but somebody was left to see what had happened and go and report it to the rest. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, that Adramelech and Sherezer killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. We figured out at Tuesday night Bible study that maybe his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, were so angry with him because of what he had named them. Would you like to be named Sherezer? So at any rate, there is the end of the Assyrian army, and there is the end of the arrogant king that sent that message. So expect God to win in the end. God's people are not defeated by the Democrats. God's people are not dependent for victory on the Republicans. No matter what the Democrats may do, no matter what the Republicans may do, God will win in the end. And he will honor those who honor him. So when we vote, and I believe that we should vote, should we follow the biblical requirements for civil magistrates or is it permissible or even a good thing for believers in non-covenantal nations that would be unbiblical nations now, we might say, no, wait, stop right there, because we are living in a Christian nation. But if you stacked up many of the things that our government has approved, and if you looked at the numbers in abortion, and if you listened to some of what is said with regard to God and belief in God, religion, we'll call it, 
then I don't know that we would qualify. We're certainly not a covenant nation like Israel. But whatever nation we're in, is it a good thing to vote for the best candidates currently available even though they don't meet biblical requirements? Now, this is a big question. I can't just hand you the answer, but I want to look at some things in Scripture and I want to present what both sides are saying and I want you to be prepared to seek the Lord before this election for His deliverance. Because like Hezekiah, I think we are facing a major crisis. First, let me say that if we claim that the Bible is good for individuals and it's good for families and it's good for the church, then it ought to be good for the nation. Would you agree? And I believe that it is. And I think that good political works would be the good works, some of the good works that Christians are called upon to do. So I certainly believe that we should have godly men in politics running for office, and perhaps some of you will be those men. Some say, well, we shouldn't mix politics with religion. If you don't want to mix it with religion, what do you want to mix it with? Humanism, maybe. Atheism, some of the other isms that we see today. Socialism, we see some mixture there. So let's go back to the Old Testament for a time. Exodus 18:21. Moses' father-in-law comes to him, and he is recommending that Moses appoint some men to help him in governing and judging the Israelites. He made it imperative that Moses needed to select men of noble character. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. We could read that covetousness. And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands and of hundreds and of fifties. Here are four good credentials. They have to be able, able to handle the job. They must fear God, that is the God of the Bible. They must be committed to the truth. And they must hate dishonest gain. None of the current presidential candidates would qualify on these four credentials, all four. Of them. Deuteronomy 1.13 Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes and I will make them rulers over you. The instructions are given to Moses. A couple of verses forward from that. And I charged your judges at that time saying, Hear the causes between your brethren and judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. You shall not respect persons in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great, and you shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's, and the cause that is too hard for you, bring it unto me, and I will hear it. Here we see six more qualifications. They are to be men, wise men, men of understanding, men who are known. That means they are proven. Proven character qualities. Men who judge righteously and have no respect of persons in judgment. There are a number of other scriptures that shed light on the qualifications of civil magistrates. But I will mention 2 Samuel 23 and verse 3. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. That's a little parallelism there. He's just talking about God speaking. He that ruleth over men must be just 
ruling in the fear of God, and that would be the God of Israel. Then in Proverbs, we can see the truth of this. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. How then should we respond to a presidential election where we have no biblically qualified candidates? This is not an easy answer, but what I would like to do is examine the reasons given on both sides of the issue. And then I want to challenge you to decide on your knees. Spread it out before the Lord as Hezekiah put out his letter in a time of crisis. I want to encourage you to examine the Scriptures fully and be convinced in your own heart. And then don't judge others who may differ with you. Now, I'm not putting these up on the screen because I don't want to legitimize these reasons. You have heard them all, I'm sure. But first, these would be reasons given by those in favor of disregarding biblical requirements for civil magistrates. In favor of just forgetting what Scripture has to say, we've got a choice of two guys, so we've got to take the best choice. Reason number one. If there are no biblically qualified candidates, you must vote for the lesser of two evils. This guy isn't nearly as bad as that guy. Reason number two, this is an interesting one. I'd rather be ruled by a wise Turk, Muslim, than a foolish Christian. That quote is supposedly attributed to Martin Luther, but it turns out to be just an urban legend. Luther warned against Islamic rule in government and against rule by the Pope, and he asked the church to pray for protection against the evils of both. Number three, if you do not vote at all, you have voted for the Democratic candidate. I'm sure that the Democrats are telling people the same thing about the Republicans. Number four, if you do not vote at all, You have failed to exercise your responsibility as a citizen, and whatever happens will be your fault. Number five, to be AWOL and puristic in the presidential election with so much as at stake is unfathomable. Number six, if you do not vote for the Republican candidate, the country will be destroyed. Millions of children will be murdered in the womb each year. Rampant immorality will pervade the nation. Mention of God's name will be outlawed in public life, not to mention economic disaster. Now, in fairness, we probably have to keep in mind that when we did have a Republican president and for several years a Republican Congress, there were still 1.2 million children murdered in the womb every year, according to Alan Alan Guttmacher Institute Statistics. Number seven. We must be practical. Vote for the one who more nearly agrees with what you think. Number eight, politics is a place for pragmatism, not puritanical idealism. Now, that would be some reasons. There may very well be others. It's not an exhaustive study. But reasons given by Christians who would be in favor of disregarding anything the Bible might say about who does what in in leadership, civil magistrate. Now, here are the reasons given by those seeking to uphold biblical requirements for civil magistrates. Number one, 
A Christian should not vote for a leader who does not meet the standard of biblical qualification. Not perfection, but qualification. Number two, voting for the lesser of two evils will never lead to righteousness. The future of the country does not hang on these two candidates, but on God's people consistently standing for righteousness on every issue before them. Number three, a Christian cannot vote for a Mormon whose Jesus is the older brother of Lucifer. That's the devil. And whose God, the Heavenly Father, is really an exalted man created by other gods that existed before he did. Eternal progression is at the heart of Mormonism. Now, I probably need to say a little more about that because some of these things are kind of shocking to us unless we really dig in to see what's there. I recommend a little classic book, So What's the Difference? Fritz Ridnor looks at 20 worldviews, faiths, and religions, and how do they compare to Christianity. And then a little bit more probably would be said about that. Brigham Young in History of the Church, section 7, number 287, every spirit that confesses Joseph Smith is a prophet, that he lived and died a prophet, and that the Book of Mormon is true, is of God, and every spirit that does not is of Antichrist. Two camps. Journal of Discourses, section 7, number 289. No man or woman in this dispensation will enter into the celestial kingdom of God without the consent of Joseph Smith. Every man and woman must have the certificate of Joseph Smith as a passport to his entrance into the mansion where God and Christ are. The Republican candidate is a sixth-generation Mormon. In 1986, he went as a missionary to France. In 1968, he was appointed president of the Mormon mission in France and led Mormon missionaries under his authority to baptize a record 200 people into the Mormon religion. In 1986, he was elected presiding high priest over 12 Mormon congregations in and around Boston, holding that position for 10 years. Now we go to number four based upon that. It would be said by this group, Mormonism will become mainstream and many thousands will be led into darkness if we have a Mormon in the White House. Just like Islam has become mainstream under our current president, although he would not say that he professes to be a Muslim. Number five, we must take a stand for higher ideals and what is right according to the Bible. Number six, should you vote for those lacking character or should you demand character? Number seven, when are we ever authorized to ignore God's standards? Number eight, God took care of Nebuchadnezzar without a vote. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all refused to endorse idolatry. Number nine, vote only for a candidate who agrees not with what you think, but with what God thinks. Now, there are some reasons on both sides of the issue. This is not going to be easy, I admit. But I want to challenge you to decide on your knees. And I'll close with some observation, with an observation and several reminders. When we lived in Birmingham, Billy Kim, a pastor from South Korea, visited our church. There were 15,000 members in his church in Suwon, South Korea. 
He told about how they pray in South Korea, not just in his church, but in every church, he said. At 4.30 a.m. in the morning, every day, winter or summer, rain or shine, they pray for hours. That was in the 1980s. I asked Christy if they still pray. She said, they do. I suspect I know one reason why they would be praying every day at 4.30 a.m. in the morning. 35 miles from Seoul to the north is the border. And across the border, the enemy is flying a different flag. And they have mechanized forces and long-range artillery and missiles pointed toward you. I would be praying too at 4.30 a.m. in the morning. But our enemy is flying the stars and stripes. And we can't recognize them unless we start comparing them and what they say to the Scriptures. Then we would start a 4.30 a.m. prayer meeting every morning. What stimulates prayer? A crisis of major proportions, and we have one. And I think the election is just a small symptom of a cultural and worldview crisis that has been brewing in this nation for decades. Now some reminders and we close. Number one, pray for those in leadership in government. Paul tells Timothy, pray for kings and all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. Now some might say, we haven't said anything out of the New Testament. Well, how about this for the New Testament? Pray for kings and for all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and humility. If we're going to live that kind of life, we're going to have to have some men in office who have the biblical qualifications, I believe. Number two, respect to those in authority. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. He is God's agent, an agent of justice, to punish the wrongdoer and to reward those who do right. Well, you got to know what's right. And you got to decide, well, is this, is this more right than this or how far are we going to go in either direction? Number three, don't become fearful. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, a sound mind. Number four, God is in charge. He's still in charge. He hasn't sent the death angel yet, but he is in charge. There is no authority, Paul tells us in Romans 13, that God has not established. No authority. And sometimes he establishes Sennacherib and he works through him for a while. King Cyrus of Persia and Nebuchadnezzar and all those guys in the Old Testament, they come, they do God's bidding, they judge God's people, and then they move on. But God is in charge. And the last one, be kind and gentle toward other Christians with whom you disagree. If the devil can get us fighting among ourselves, then he's already won part of the battle. In Second Timothy, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. Now, there are some reasons 
given by both sides as to why we should vote or should not vote a certain way. And I want to call on you to go to the Scriptures and examine your heart and see what God would have you to do. And we have an opportunity to begin that right now. I know we're not beginning right now, but to continue uh, seeking the Lord. And I think Justin is going to uh, lead our prayer. So, uh, Justin, if you will come forward. We want to ask our men, our young men, to lead us as we pray. And we want to ask the Lord to help us in this time of crisis in our nation.